0: The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 52. Welcome back to The Medical School HQ Podcast, the place to learn how to excel as a pre-med student, learn what it takes to survive medical school, and turn your dreams of becoming a physician into reality. Episode by episode, we're bringing you the most unbiased, honest, and accurate information available online today. My name, as always, is Ryan Gray, and I'm the host of the Medical School HQ podcast. I am a physician, and together with my wife, who's not with me today, we run the medical school headquarters. She is also a physician. And today, we have an excellent interview for you today. We have Alexa Miesis. She is a second year student at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And we're going to talk all about mentorship and how mentoring positively affected her life and her path into medicine, and why she continues to be a positive influence on others and continues her mentoring. But first, this podcast is brought to you by the Academy at Medical School Headquarters an online membership site for helping you through the pre-med process. With monthly office hours, webinars, and a growing library of video and audio interviews and courses, it is a vital tool to help you get into and through medical school. Just go to jointheacademy.net for more information. So for today's interview, I want you to listen all the way through to the end. We have a couple of Alexa's books to give away. She wrote a book in between her first and second year of medical school titled The Heartbeat of Success, A Med Student's Guide to Med School Admissions. And she sent me a copy and sent me a couple extra copies to give away and we'll tell you how you can win one of these copies near the end of our interview. And I read through this and I wouldn't give you a positive review of this if I didn't think it was worth a read. But... Reading through it, it sounds like I would have written it. It's very down-to-earth, very logical advice, and very accurate advice. So it's a good read. So hopefully a couple of you out there will be able to win one. We have two of them to give away. We begin the interview by talking about where Alexa is currently on her path.
1: So I'm a second-year medical student at Mount Sinai in New York City. And I'm also in the Master of Public Health program, so... I'll graduate with both my MD and my MPH in 2016.
0: Okay, and you're at Mount Sinai, you said.
1: Yes, at Mount Sinai. That's awesome. It's called
0: uh, Icon School of Medicine now, right?
1: Yeah, we just changed the name. They just—I didn't change the name. They <laughs> changed the name last year. Carl Icon gave us a pretty sizable monetary gift, and so they named the school after him. So officially we the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai.
0: That's a mouthful. But everybody
1: still just calls it Sinai. Yeah, everybody's still, you know, hey, you know, I'm at Sinai. It's, it's
0: <laughs> still Sinai.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: It's one of those things that'll take a couple generations to actually change, maybe.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Because when I was a first year throughout pretty much that whole year, it was still Mount Sinai School of Medicine. So I don't know if I'll ever break that habit. <laughs> yeah,
0: you won't. So Sinai is a great medical school. It's Mm -hmm. highly ranked in U.S. news and reports, which I don't really trust the rankings. But overall, we know that Mount Sinai is a a great school. And you got in there and you're on scholarship there, correct? Right. That's awesome. Do you know like how many scholarships they offer to a school like that?
1: I'm not exactly sure. They very rarely give out full scholarships. That's what, you know, the financial aid officer says when you go there and interview, but it does happen. And they do give out uh, partial or almost full scholarships. I'm not exactly sure of the number, but there is a difference between a merit-based and a need-based scholarship. Mm -hmm. So even if students don't get merit-based scholarships, they still try to help out and offer students need-based scholarships as well.
0: That's awesome. And Sinai is a private school, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotta love private schools with their jacked up tuition. I went to a private school as well (laughs) at New York Med right up the road. So I know that feeling of the... uh, Actually, I don't know the feeling because I went to school on a health profession scholarship through the military, but my wife has her loan. So (laughs) we we still have that debt. So I want to talk about the successes that you had as probably going back to high school and then undergrad That got you to where you are now. I want to kind of work backwards. Can you talk about what you think set you up for the success of getting into Sinai, getting a scholarship, and getting you on your way to becoming a physician?
1: Sure. So, should I start with all the things that I was sort of participated in and experienced as an undergraduate? Sure. 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 Okay. So, starting out, you know, I went to the City University of New York City College for undergrad which is a large public city university in New York. So starting out, I already knew that I wanted to be a doctor. And in my first year of college, I was torn between, you know, majoring in either biology, psychology, and I was even interested in English. You know, I guess I was, at the time I hadn't had, you know, much mentorship specific to becoming a physician. And so I think I was focusing on what I thought medical schools wanted to see now, the good news is that I absolutely love biology. I also went to a science high school, so science really is my thing. And for me, when it came down to it, I chose biology because I wanted something that was a little bit more tangible than psychology. So I majored in biology, minored in psychology, and I still found other ways to write and, you know, sort of explore my love for writing on the side. But one of the things that was really influential to me and how I view medicine and being a physician was I became a member of the Minority Association of Pre-Medical Students, also known as MAPS. And MAPS is the undergraduate arm of the National Medical Association. So the SNMA is an organization specifically for medical students of color. And I really think their mission is twofold. On one hand, the SNMA tries to help you know, medical students of color succeed in medical school. But on the other hand, they really work to raise awareness about health disparities and sort of health equity and social justice issues. And so I think all of that was infused into my extracurricular activities with maps as an undergraduate, you know, and I think growing up, I grew up in Queens, New York, I think I had experienced some health disparities, but had never actually known what health disparities meant as a, you know, as like a vocabulary term. (laughs) So, you know, so in undergrad, I I learned, okay, you know, maybe some of the things I witnessed in my neighborhood, these were actually health disparities and MAPS is what got me interested in public health and also got me thinking more about, you know, what is the role of a physician in society beyond just taking care of patients in a one-on-one in-office or hospital setting,
0: Can you talk briefly, if you don't mind, some of those health disparities that you're talking about? So others that are listening might go, hmm, I see that same stuff. I didn't really put two and two together.
1: Sure. Yeah, you know, I think growing up, I didn't really put two and two together either. But just to give you an example, my mom, she's a diabetic. And so when I was a young kid, I was maybe, I don't know, four years old, I would go with my mom to her doctor's appointments. And we only lived, you know, about four or five blocks away from the health clinic. But within that short distance, there had to be, and I'm not exaggerating, there had to be 10 fast food restaurants in that short five block walk. There was McDonald's and, you know, all these fried chicken pieces and, you know, that for me, like, I guess at the time, I didn't realize that it was exactly that sort of environment you know in terms of access to food that Mm -hmm. was contributing to the the obesity and diabetes epidemic that a lot of people in my community were experiencing my mother being one of those people okay yeah
0: okay so you see this disparity and that gets you involved in that you were talking about starting to get involved in the public health realm right okay talk about that a little bit more
1: Yeah, sure. So in undergrad, I also I was awarded this fellowship called the Jeanette K. Watson Fellowship, which is funded by the Thomas J. Watson Foundation. And the whole point of this fellowship is to sort of provide opportunities to promising undergraduates, provide them with opportunities for professional development. And the way that this is done is through summer internships, full time summer internships for three summers. And professional development seminars and cultural activities and all, you know, all sorts of things throughout the summer and even in the academic year. And so as a Jeanette K. Watson fellow, I spent my first summer uh, teaching biology and ecology at the Bronx Zoo. That was immediately after my sophomore year of college. By then, my interest in public health had started revving up. And so I spent my second summer as a Jeanette K. Watson fellow at Gay Men's Health Crisis, which is a very well-known HIV community-based organization. Mm -hmm. And so while I was there, I was, you know, an intern in the public policy department. I had an opportunity to write, you know, to do research and write policy briefs to draft action alerts. You know, these were things that were sent out on the listserv to keep clients and partners of gay men's health crisis informed about different advocacy issues. And then while there, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was still sort of, exploring my writing on my own, I had an opportunity to write my first magazine article. And so at Game and South Crisis, I wrote an article about, it's this very interesting yet gruesome phenomenon called corrective rape. And basically it's, you know, when homosexual women or lesbian women are raped in an effort to correct their sexual orientation. And, you know, the sad part, if that's not sad enough, is that often it's family members, friends members of the community that, you know, that are reaping these women. And so I looked at this. I did some research and looked at this and its impact on the spread of HIV. And that was what my first article was about. So my article was published in Pause Magazine in a quarterly publication called Treatment Issues. Wow. And I, yeah, I think by then I was hooked. And I said, you know what? When I go to medical school, I'm also going to get my MPH. By then <laughs> I had made that decision. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So I yeah. want to jump back to the beginning of your undergrad, and and maybe even in high school, because somebody listening to this will go, well, obviously, you just started out doing everything right. But my question to you is, how did you figure out what you needed to do and how to get involved? Where did all that come from?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I could tell you, you know, to be perfectly honest, I certainly was not the person who was doing everything right. I think one of the things that gave me sort of a lot of motivation and passion to do really well in undergrad was that in high school, I wasn't the best student. And that was for a number of issues. You know, on a personal level, I became very ill during high school, which interfered with my attendance in class, which subsequently impacted, you know, my performance in math. But then also more externally, one of the terrible things that was going on around me, and this was also something that solidified my interest in medicine, was every year that I was a student at you know at my high school, someone had died of drug related causes, and so for me, that was something that I guess I didn't understand. One of the students who died was a boy that I mentored during his freshman year of high school, and so that's when it really hit home when you know one of the students that I had known and that I had spoken with died of a heroin overdose. And so as a high school student, I became involved, you know, with a drug awareness club. We started this club on campus that increased awareness about drugs and the effects they have on the brain and body. And so that was the thing that really got me interested in psychiatry and thinking about neuroscience. So I think all of those experiences that occurred in high school is what sort of gave me the fuel and sort of the energy to do well in college. But even in college, I wasn't, you know, I, you know, everybody kind of flips up sometimes. And one of the things that happened to me was, I guess it was my, my freshman year of college or the first semester of my sophomore year. But anyway, I had taken a math class and failed it. I actually didn't do well at all. This was a pre-calculus class. So it wasn't on the college level just yet. And You know, I failed, I think, as the result of a lot of different issues. One thing was certainly how prepared I was or how unprepared I was from the experiences in high school to do well math. But on the other hand, I was also working to help support myself. And so, you know, this is something that I talk about in my book. I think whenever you encounter an obstacle, it's really important to just stop before taking another step forward, stop and try to figure out what went wrong. And so... Once I figured out that all of these things had contributed to my poor performance in math, I cut down on my work hours, but I also took advantage of a peer tutoring program that was available at my undergraduate institution. And then, you know, the next semester I did very well in that math class and then went on to get an A in the college level calculus course.
0: I want to stop you there because I think the point that you just made is huge and I think one that students often miss. And I think humans often miss just mm-hmm. looking at a global scale is actually stopping taking the time to figure out what just happened mm-hmm. why you failed why you were off course and figuring out how to get back on course i talk about that a lot just calling it course correction because i'm an aviator i i fly and i'm in the air force so i have to talk plane lingo and the analogy that I always use is if you're taking off from JFK in New York and you're flying out to LAX in California, 90% of the time that plane is off course. It doesn't turn around and go, oh crap, I, I messed up. I got to go start over. <laughs> it figures out right. what's wrong, how to fix it, and it fixes it. And right. I think when you're studying for the MCAT, taking the time mm-hmm. to go over those tests and figure out why you missed every question. Why you got questions right and actually exactly. learning every step of the way why something just happened instead of going it happened, I'm just gonna move forward, and so that's that's right. awesome, and I think if nothing else students can that are listening can take away that point to just stop and analyze because of the there's the i don't know who says it I have to figure out the definition of insanity is doing <laughs> the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result
1: right <laughs>
0: so. So you you figured out what went wrong. You fixed it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's right. You know, and again, I guess, you know, everything I do, I think, is inspired by events of my history, whether that's my immediate history or thinking about my childhood. But, you know, that tutoring, you know, when I took advantage of the peer tutoring, that was something that also influenced my decision to become a peer tutor. No, I didn't tutor math, but (laughs) I did tutor, yeah. (laughs) But I did tutor biology and chemistry and genetics. And that was sort of my way of, you know, wanting to give back for all that I had gained from the peer tutoring program. And I think at the time, I really wasn't able to sort of really pinpoint or foresee just how beneficial becoming a tutor would be for me. I think, being a tutor allowed me to reinforce a lot of the fundamental scientific concepts, which in turn helped me not only do better on the higher level science courses, but also on the MCAT. So I think that, you know, when I made that decision as a sophomore to become a peer tutor, I, I didn't really understand the implications of it. But looking back, you know, I'm really grateful that I took advantage of that experience.
0: Teaching is one of the best ways of learning.
1: Yep, that's right. That's I awesome. couldn't agree more.
0: <laughs> so I want to dig a little bit deeper into the mentorship that you gave, but also, I think you received a lot of mentorship along your way. And Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how that you think that influenced you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think mentorship is huge. I mean, I talk about mentorship all the time, because I really believe that it was one of these sort of All of the mentorship I received and all the relationships I built were really transformative and allowed me to be where I am today. So just to speak more concretely, to give you an example, there's an organization called Mentoring in Medicine that a physician from Albert Einstein College of Medicine started. And this organization, it's a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to helping students of all ages I think now she works with students from third grade all the way through medical school. But it's to help students who are interested in pursuing a career in the health professions learn more about that career and also become more competitive for these graduate and professional school programs. And so just as I was starting, this was around the same time that I joined MAPS. Mentoring in Medicine was a a fairly new organization. So it's really nice You know, as I sort of came up in undergrad, I I feel like I grew up alongside mentoring in medicine as it grew. And through mentoring in medicine, I met two physician mentors who I really, I, I can't even begin to describe how thankful I am for having a relationship with these two doctors, you know, throughout college when I had my bump in the road and failed math or when I didn't do too well in organic chemistry too. You know, they were always there to listen and offer good advice, but they were also there to just be supportive and encouraging as a MAPS member. And then later as the president of my MAPS chapter, I helped start and organize an annual health fair. And, you know, both of these physician mentors were able to provide me with advice and just support and encourage me about how to go, you know, how to go about executing, you know, sort of the event, how to make sure that we had a good turnout, how to make sure that we had good participation from the community. So I really feel like through my ups and downs, both of these mentors were by my side. And then when it came time to study for the MCAT and eventually put together my medical school application, again, they were there to really provide guidance that I don't think I would have otherwise gotten. You know, like I said, I I went to a really big public city university. And so just by that fact alone, I feel like the pre-med office was often inundated with students and their requests. And so... It was often very difficult to get personalized guidance. Mm -hmm. And then since, you know, I'm the first person in my family to become a doctor, my family was always supportive, but again, couldn't really provide me with guidance specific to applying to medical school. And so I think that those two mentors really, you know, filled that void in my professional life. And I remain in contact with them today as well. So yeah, they're still my mentors today.
0: That's awesome. A listener that is out in the middle of Nebraska somewhere that doesn't have access to the mentors that you had. Do you have any recommendations for somebody to go and find mentors?
1: Yeah. Well, I have two things to say about that. First, depending on what it is that you're hoping to seek mentorship for, you often don't need someone like a physician to provide you with guidance, right? I mean, when it comes to learning to do well in college or how to find a job that works with your school schedule or whatever it is, sometimes your own peers can be your mentor. So a mentor doesn't even necessarily have to be someone who's older than you or further along in his or her career, but it's someone who's supportive and can help you find a solution to whatever your problem is, a solution that fits for you. And that's just speaking very generally. But specifically, let's say you're not sure how to study for the MCAT or you're not even sure if you want to be a doctor and you want to gain clinical experience. What I always say is don't be afraid to reach out to someone. Now, the good thing is that even if you're in Nebraska, most people still have things like email and everyone's connected on social media. And you know, almost now everybody has a cell phone. So I think there are many different ways to reach out and Often people think, oh, you know, that person doesn't have time for me or, oh, you know, they're not going to want to, you know, let me shadow them. They don't care about me. I'm just a pre-med student. But you'd be surprised how many people are willing to, you know, sort of take you under their wing and allow you to observe them and pick their brains and sort of, you know, ask them for advice and guidance. So I would say be fearless. Don't be afraid. What's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is they'll tell you no. <laughs>
0: they'll tell you no. There's, there's no that. The fear worst of death. That can
1: happen. Exactly. Exactly. The worst that can happen is they'll tell you no, but you'll never know what they're going to say if you don't ask.
0: Yeah. The worst that can happen is they'll tell you no. The best that can happen is they'll tell you yes. Exactly. They might tell you no, but talk to this guy. He loves working with students. They exactly. they might be able to to help you find somebody, even if they're not willing to. and. Some people are unwilling for numerous reasons and they might tell you, they might not tell you. So a no is not the end of the road. You just go find another person, another doctor.
1: Right. I mean, and you never know what type, exactly like you just said, you'll never know what type of opportunities it will open up, you know, what type of doors it will open up for you. Again, just to give you an example, around that same time in like my second year of college, I was looking for a more student friendly job. Up until that point, I was working in retail and it was really a time sink for me. And I knew that if I wanted to get more serious about college and make sure I did well, that I had to start working a little bit less. So I was looking for a job that would either allow me to work fewer hours or in some way directly contribute to my success as a college student and later on a medical student. And so I went on um, you know, one of those job hunting websites and I saw that a physician in, in my area in New York City was looking for a receptionist. You know, so I went on this interview kind of thinking in the back of my mind that this probably wouldn't work, because I don't think I could work nine to five. And I said, you know, let me just see what she's thinking in terms of, you know, the schedule. So I went on this interview, and she and I really hit it off. And we knew right away, we knew almost immediately that that schedule wise, it just wasn't going to work. There was no way that I could be there at her office for that long. But just based on that interview, and I guess she saw some potential in me or saw my passion for medicine you know, she offered to mentor me. So again, this was not through like a formal mentoring organization. This was sort of by chance, you know, going on a job interview that I came into contact with this plastic surgeon, this, you know, female plastic surgeon, a strong woman in medicine. And again, she offered to sort of take me under her wing. And, you know, what started out as a volunteer position, you know, sort of shadowing her and learning to talk to patients and, you know, interview patients eventually became a paid position later on in my college career, and I had a little bit more time.
0: That's awesome. Now, there's a diagram that I love, and I'll I'll have to put it in the the show notes for people to see. But it's I've seen many variations of it, but it's basically two circles that do not overlap. One circle says your comfort zone, and the other circle says where great things happen. And where great things happen is, is outside of your comfort zone and making cold calling physicians offices, sending that email, clicking that submit or send button to send an email to ask a stranger to shadow, right? Those are outside of everybody's comfort zone, but you have to do it. You have to get outside your comfort zone for that kind of cool stuff to happen that you're talking about.
1: Right, exactly.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And I think this. Same thing goes just as like a word about networking in general. Networking, like what is networking? It's like this elusive thing. Nobody knows what it is or everybody's afraid to do it, you know? I mean, one thing I think is also really important is keeping in contact with people that you meet over the years, whether that's in college and it's your classmates or it's physicians that you worked with or professors, whatever it is. And oftentimes what I hear from pre-medical students is like, Oh but it feels so forced. It feels so forced, you know. I haven't talked to this person in 3 months. Why am I going to email them to let them know what I'm up to? But I think that something like that, something as simple as just shooting them an email, touching base with them to say hi, how are you? You know, I'm I'm doing well, this is what's going on with me. Again, you never know what opportunities are going to come from that. And so just based on like networking, like staying in contact with people that I've met over the years, I was able to call upon them later when I was, you know, putting on a health fair or writing my book or mentoring students, if I don't have the answer for them, I can refer the student, you know, to maybe this other person in my professional network. So that's the other thing I would say in terms of leaving your comfort zone, if, you know, consider the idea of networking and what that can mean for you in the future.
0: Yeah. So you just mentioned your book. And if people aren't already kind of amazed by how much stuff that you've done through your undergrad career and and everything you're doing mentoring-wise. You wrote a book between first and second (laughs) year?
1: Yeah, between first and second year. Let's
0: talk about your book.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, as I already mentioned, I love to write and I've always written and I knew that in the future I would want to write a book. But I thought to myself, you know, I'm a young woman. I, I'm not yet seasoned. I haven't really seen the world. Nobody wants to read my memoirs or anything like that. So I figured I'll put that book off until the future. But one thing that I think came really naturally was the idea of writing a guide to medical school admissions. And so I think this was something that was always in the back of my mind, yet it was over the summer and between my first and second year of medical school that I got this email and this email said, hey, you know, reading this Write Your Book in 30 Day Challenge. And this was sponsored by the mentoring organization that I'm a part of, Mentoring in Medicine, as well as this other company called Small Business Camp. And I said to myself, "Okay, write your book in 30 days. It sounds crazy. But what do you know, I start my second year of med school in 30 days. So let's see if I can get this book done before, you know, school starts. You know, and over the summer I was working, I was doing research, but I was also working with uh, one of the offices at my medical school and I was leading workshops on writing a personal statement and interviewing for medical school. So I think it was those sorts of seeds that were planted in my head that gave me the idea to write this book. And my goal for writing the book was to, on one hand, be able to reach a larger audience and offer them the tools and, and sort of tips that I think are invaluable to succeeding in the med school admissions process. But the other thing that I thought is, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, what about a person who feels like they're isolated, you know, in Nebraska and they don't have any role <laughs> Poor models. Nebraska. <laughs> Okay, Nebraska it could be somewhere upstate New York um, North Dakota <laughs> there you go <laughs>
0: we won't pick um, on Nebraska anymore
1: <laughs> yeah so I think you know that was also my other hope that for someone who feels like they don't have mentors readily available to them they can read this book and get a lot of really great advice as well yes, that's how the book started. It started as sort of this idea in the back of my mind and stumbling upon this, write your book in 30 days challenge. And I did write the book in 30 days. And then I spent about a month working on revisions and last minute touches. And then the book was published in the very beginning of October.
0: That's awesome. And the book's called The Heartbeat of Success, a Med Student's Guide to Med School Admissions. And I got a copy of the book. Thank you. And you're welcome. I was reading it and going through it this weekend and I flagged a couple of things that I really liked and reading it for those listening reading it it sounds like something that I would have written and <laughs> maybe we'll write something in the future but I I don't know I don't like writing well, there was a couple lines and, and one line you said take every bit of advice with a grain of salt and you followed right. it up with try to hear as many perspectives as possible and lay out every piece of advice like Cards on the table, and I think too often, and one of the reasons why I started the podcast and the website and was to try to let students realize that there are other voices out there it's not just the three letter website that nobody <laughs> nobody likes going to <laughs> because right. because that seems to be a very one voice over there, and that that voice isn't the the average. And I think a lot of people read what they read on that website and they get discouraged and they think, oh, I can't do this or it's going to be too hard. I might as well not try. And the advice that you give about taking everything with a little bit with a grain of salt and hear as many perspectives as possible is huge. Just because I say something, just because you say something doesn't mean that's 100% set in stone. And I think... Students need to hear that and and realize that they need to figure out what's best for them. And and talking to many people will do that.
1: Yeah, I think talking to as many people as possible can't hurt you as long as, you know, like we just said, you are taking things with a grain of salt. Because I guess the flip side to that is you could be pulled in a million different directions. But again, just to give you like a concrete example from my experiences, I knew I wanted to go to med school. I'm in college now and i decided to spend a fifth year in undergrad. Some people were like, are you crazy? Why are you prolonging your education even further? Why do you want to spend another year in college? Or, you know, if you spend another year in college, med schools might not like that because they want someone who went straight through in 4 years. But for me, the reason why i wanted to spend a fifth year in college is because in addition to taking all of the courses, you know, required for my biology major, i wanted to make sure that I had time to do other things that were of interest to me. So I was able to spend a month in Spain doing a study abroad program. I was able to take creative writing and poetry classes. I took an acting class. I took a history of women in medicine class. I did all these things that I would have otherwise been unable to do because I decided to spend that fifth year in college. And that was a personal choice. And some people, you know, said, don't do it. Other people were supportive. But the point is that I listened to what everybody else said, And I critically evaluated what they were saying to me. And I chose, you know, I chose ultimately my decision was the one that was best suited for my situation.
0: Yeah. And during your interviews, did anybody say, yeah, we saw that you took five years and we were were kind of weary about inviting you for an interview? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Definitely not. Actually, quite the opposite. Most people were, I guess, they thought it as like a mark of maturity or, or I guess a sign of courage or something that, you know, I was able to deviate from the traditional, you know, pre-med path, but for a really good reason. So that's another bit of advice that if you ever, it's okay to deviate from the traditional pre-medical student path. And in fact, many med schools look upon that favorably. They want Students with more life experience and a broader perspective on what it means to be a physician. But whenever you deviate, just be prepared to explain why you made that decision, you know, what you learned from it or what you didn't learn from it. And I think as long as, you know, you're able to speak honestly, then you can't go wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard it straight from an admissions panel talking about how as a a non-traditional student and and you're a non-traditional student by taking that extra year, you're automatically Mm -hmm. seen as different. And that's a good thing because they have thousands of the same application. And as soon as they see something that's different, that piques their interest and it makes them want to talk to you. And that's the important
1: thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and even after that fifth year, I spent a gap year and you know, I took another year off after graduation when I spent a year doing research at the National Institutes of Health. That wasn't something that was there to like boost my resume. You know, that was something that I was genuinely curious about. I guess based on my experiences from high school, I was still interested in the idea of drug addiction. And so for that year, I was actually at the Na- National Institute on Drug Abuse doing drug addiction research. So in the end, when it came time, you know, when I was sitting there in my interviews, what was presented was this cohesive story that had started many, many years ago. And that was only because throughout that whole process, I did two things. One, I was pursuing what I was interested in and what I loved. And then two, I was honest with admission committees and I allowed them to sort of learn those things about me. That's awesome. Yeah,
0: that's a, a great story. And it sounds like you've packed a lot into your short life so far. If, <laughs> if you had one final piece of advice for a pre-med student out there, what would it be?
1: Mm-hmm. Good question. If I had to narrow it down to one thing. What's
0: your go-to piece of advice? <laughs>
1: My go-to piece of advice is really to do what you love. And there are many people who are critical of that advice, you know, doing what you love. They say to be practical or, you know, to sort of conform to of an idea of what they think is right. But I say if you're doing what you're most passionate about, you will naturally excel. You will naturally shine. And if for some reason you're not even sure yet what you're passionate about, which is true in the case of many, many people, that's okay too, then spend time figuring out what you love.
0: Yeah. And I think that piece of advice is best translated for an undergraduate student trying to figure out what major to take. I think most pre-med students try to conform to the hard sciences of chemistry, biology, and Mm -hmm. they might not be passionate about that, and it might be reflected in their grades but if you go out and major in theater because that's what you're passionate about and you take all your pre-med requirements your grades and your personality and everything will just excel because you're you're happy with what you're doing. Right. That's
1: awesome. Right, I couldn't agree more. Yep.
0: That is great advice. Alexa, where can people find you online?
1: Okay, so I have a website it's www.alexameses.com That's A-L-E-X-A-M-I-E-S-E-S.com. And then I also blog regularly for a Medscape blog called The Differential. If you just put that into one of the search engines, I'm sure it'll, awesome. it'll pop up.
0: I'll link to all that in the show notes.
1: Sure. And then I'm also on Twitter as well. And that's a great way to um, get in contact with me. And my, I guess my Twitter name is soon to be Dr. Mieses. <laughs> so it's S. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so it's S-O-N, the number two, the letter B, D-R Mieses.
0: <laughs> D-R Mieses. M-I-E-S-E-S. That's right. That's a long one. You must have just squeezed it in there.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, hopefully we'll, people will go in and say hi to you on Twitter and check out your blog. And we have a couple books to give away.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: I have two books to mail out to people, two of your books, not just random books. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we're going to give away two of these books for students that go out and leave a comment in the show notes. And you can go to the show notes at medicalschoolhq.net slash 52, the numbers five and two for the episode number 52. Go there, leave a note, a comment in the show notes about how mentorship has affected your path and where you are right now. And Alexa and I will take a look at them, we'll read them, we'll respond to them, but we're going to pick a couple winners at random from those comments. How does that sound, Alexa?
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: All right. And then we'll we'll get those winners and uh, I'll mail them out a copy of your book.
1: Great. I look forward to reading the comments and I'd love I look forward to hearing how um mentors have played a role in other people's lives.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be very valuable to for students to kind of think about that because it's again, it's not something we're very bad at analyzing stuff that goes on in our life. And so I think for somebody to take a second to think about that will be useful to them and then for other people to read and and maybe give them the courage to reach out to a mentor or a possible mentor.
1: Right. Definitely.
0: Awesome. Well, Alexa, thank you for joining us.
1: No, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, folks. That was Alexa Miesis. She is on Twitter. She has her website. We gave you those links at the end of the interview. They will be available in the show notes. Again, medicalschoolhq.net slash 52, as an episode 52. And it's there in the show notes where you can go and leave a comment and Alexa and I will draw a couple of those comments randomly to win the book and send you a copy of her book to read. You can always continue the conversation on Twitter as well. You can uh, tweet me. I'm at Medical School HQ. You can shoot me an email. I'm ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. As always, I hope the information brought to you today was helpful. I hope it It continues to help you on your path to becoming a physician. And as always, I hope you join us next time here at the medical school headquarters.